Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in this episode? This episode, we're going to discuss the state standards across the nation and specifically in New Hampshire. And then we're going to talk about the religious silencing of women. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 7, His Voice, Her Voice. National and state social studies standards provide a top-down opportunity to create widespread change and open the door to include women. And unfortunately, this is a route unlikely to produce many gains. States are notoriously underfunded in the social studies, and there is very little professional development for them. Uh, I've been a teacher for, this is my eighth year, and not a once has my school done any professional development for the social studies uh, as a school-wide initiative. We've had English people come speak about writing standards. We've had math people come talk about how we can improve math scores. We've had social-emotional people come talk about mental health. Never once have we talked about teaching tolerance or, you know, equality or diversity education or any of the things that are important to the social studies. (laughs) Do you feel like that is because it's not something that the state tests on? Absolutely. There's reasons you feel like that. Yeah, I mean, so there's a testing is a whole different animal because because it is really difficult for people to find consensus in the social studies because social studies involves politics and so people don't agree on politics and so whenever anybody tries to do anything in the social studies which includes history there's raucous debate (laughs) and it's it's a lot so um so that's there's so many layers to that so why don't we test it well we don't test it because people can't agree and there's we don't test it because a lot of you know a lot of what we're teaching kids how to do is to um take facts and um and and articulate their you know political positions using historical evidence and so so it's more you know it's not socialize is really hard to turn into a multiple choice standardized test yeah i can imagine so so there's a lot of reasons why it's not tested but i think that's one of the ways that we can see sort of the devaluing of the social studies um My husband's a guidance counselor, and in his previous school, he was told that he could interrupt any class to do, um, to, to, you know, come in and talk about, you know, SATs or whatever he needed to talk about with the kids. The only core class that he was allowed to interrupt was social studies. Math, science, English were like protected subjects that could not be interrupted by guidance. And then there's this issue of logistics because the social studies is one of the few classes that isn't segregated by ability level, right? All the kids that are in 11th grade are in the social studies class. And so because of that, I have everybody. I have all of the kids in that grade level in the same room. And so what's problematic about having all the kids in the same room is that my classroom is the only one that the guidance counselor, if they need to meet with the juniors, 
they can meet with all of the juniors in their social studies class. If they wanted to interrupt math, they'd have to interrupt three different classes in order to get to all the juniors. And so anytime they need to talk to a grade level, they interrupt social studies. And so throughout the year, I lose at minimum five classes to guidance interruptions. That's a lot. And no other class gets interrupted. No other core subject gets interrupted like that. One of the other things that's important to understand about social studies standards and why they are unlikely to change is state and local boards of education tend to be much more conservative than the historians that are actually the experts. And so um, the people that get the final say in what the in what is being taught in the classroom. So we basically are putting lay people in charge of overseeing the history education and they don't know what they're talking about. And so um, there that's that's a really big issue. Yeah. So imagine it can be debated at at nauseum. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so let's dive into the standards specifically. A couple years ago, the National Women's History Museum, which right now is an online museum. Are you familiar with that? No, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, so down in D.C. on the mall, there's all these museums, right? There's like the Air and Space Museum and the National American History Museum. And um, recently they built a museum, the African American History Museum. Yes, yeah, I saw some things on that. It's super cool. I don't, it, I um, I'm, was blown away when I walked in. It's just such like so rich um, with information. And so women have been organizing for, I think, the better part of a decade to try to build fundraise and build a women's history museum to go on the mall. So, right. So you can donate to that organization um, and, and help get that that museum. In those social studies standards, they vary on what they cover and how much time they invest in that. And um, Iowa and Rhode Island, for example, basically pass the buck from the state level to local jurisdictions. And so basically individual towns can decide what they're doing. New Hampshire is really interesting because we have um, social uh, about women in their state standards. Interesting. Very, very dense. It's 106 pages of social studies standards. Um, That's a lot. That's a lot. But then, you know, live free or die New Hampshire, we say, so here are the social studies standards. This is what's, uh, you know, this is what you should teach, but also local control, do what you want. And so people don't even have to follow those 106 pages of social studies standards. It's pretty problematic. So documents across the nation can range from basically like three pages to one state has 580 pages of social studies standards. And and is that Washington? I, I, there's no uniformity whatsoever. There's a lot, especially right now with the Black Lives Matter protests, wanting to people to stop whitewashing history, which I'm totally in support of. Um, one thing that's really challenging about that is there's sort of this misperception that these state standards a matter because, like in New Hampshire, we have pretty like dense standards but teachers don't have to follow them because of local control right and so so that's so you might point to them and be like these are racist and or sexist and they might be but it probably doesn't matter um and then in other states it does matter what those state standards say so in their study the 
National Women's History Museum said that basically for the social studies on a national level, they are wildly different. The universe of possible content and topics overlaid by political, cultural, and ideological perspectives resulted in the individualized state state. Social studies faces things that English and math don't ever have to deal with. Nobody disagrees that this is the Pythagorean theorem, right? Like we know that that is true. We don't debate it. Um, the problem in social studies is that lots of things are debated. They were debated in history, and so we need to do that justice. But we have no uniformity in in determining what are the topics that every school child needs to know, and it varies so much from state to state. In some ways, that's really good because, like here in New Hampshire, we should do justice to Daniel Webster, right? We should talk about Mary Baker Eddy, and those are people that, like, if you live in Arizona, you've probably never heard of, and you probably don't need to hear of because though those are local people that were important in our history so the uniformity is perhaps not in the content that should be covered but we should find uniformity in the skills that we want all kids to know and I hesitate saying that because the state standards do give teachers a lot of leeway to follow through on their degrees and their expertise in history, political science, economics, psychology, whatever it might be. But I, I do get very cautious as we relinquish control to individual educators because if an educator is sexist, if an educator is racist, that leaves, and if an educator just flat out doesn't know stuff, right? Like I wasn't exposed to a lot of minority history in my own educational experience. I had to research that and find it myself. So if you don't know those things, then you could just be perpetuating falsehoods about various groups in American and world history, and that can be really problematic. So while I think that we do need to trust and empower history teachers to do research and give them training on, you know, diversity education, I I think that skills is really where we should be finding uniformity and investing in that to get our students to be critical thinkers and dictate less about the content that needs to be covered. Because at the end of the day, if we get kids asking good questions, they will find the diverse history on their own. And so recently, um, the governing body for the social studies, which is called the National Council for the Social Studies, and I should probably put a disclaimer in that I'm the president-elect for the New Hampshire Council for the Social <laughs> Studies. <laughs> yeah, I represent this organization, but um, they, they sort of are the governing body. So if you're a social studies teacher and you are um, a member of any professional organization, you should be a member of this organization in your state, whatever that is. So uh, recently they adopted a set of state standards called the C3. The C3 stands for College, Career, and Civic Life. And um, basically this is inquiry-based instruction, which is something that good social studies teachers have been using forever. Um, it's a really great uh, set of standards for pedagogy because it basically gets kids to ask critical questions and the questions guide what they're learning about in class. And um, 
and this is so it's a it's a really great way to teach history the problem that i see with the c3 is like from a teaching perspective it's wonderful from a historical perspective it doesn't fix any of the problems that we've been talking about because the c3 does not prescribe what you teach about it prescribes how you teach it it's still not fixing that that problem that we're missing information we're missing information and so as a teacher I basically have had to go get multiple other degrees that I don't have credit for in, you know, African-American history, in women's history, in Chinese-American history, in Native American history, in order to undo the white male centricizing, that's not a word, but of history and and to create, you know, a more inclusive people's history in my classroom. And um, and so. So I, you know, you have to go and do that research in order to include the voices of women and minorities. If that is your goal to get those, those voices in your classroom, then yes, you have to go out and go do your due diligence and research to do that. I mean, essentially you can bring into the classroom what you feel could be relevant to accomplishing the C3 question that you're trying to get at. And you can do it from a multitude of different lenses. Um, I should say, though, I live in the live free or die state. Um, there are lots of states where what you teach in every subject is in, is directly prescribed to you. So you get a binder and it's day one. This is what you're teaching. This is the activity next day two. This is the what you're teaching about. This is the script that you need to read to the students. Here's the activity. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like I think about... I think anyone listening to the podcast really starts to think about their own historical, you know, guidance from their teachers as they were growing up. And I grew up in Connecticut, relatively similar to New Hampshire. They could decide how they wanted to teach. But I can remember specifically having a teacher that did exact textbook chapters. We came in, read four, four paragraphs, did the questions at the bottom of the page, moved on to the next one, had that history teacher. But I also had two incredible history teachers that just like brought in relevant information, current events really challenged us to think about women and the lens women brought to it and like model UN and, and just like really thought about how are we affecting ourselves and change and globally perspective. You know, it was very good mix, but I can see if you only get one, how narrow your view gets, or if you only get the other, how radical your view gets. So I want to Staying on the theme of the state standards, I want to tell you a little bit about a personal experience that I had. Um, I sit again on the New Hampshire Council for the Social Studies, and we were in a meeting one day. We had just um, elected a new governor. He's a Republican governor, Sununu. And I was sitting in a in a board meeting, and the woman from the Historical Society, who's also on our board, uh, turns to the board and she says, hey, guys, I just wanted to make you aware of something. The governor has a point uh, has asked the commissioner of education who, uh, if you are familiar with Betsy DeVos uh, at the national level, are, I mean, if you're not get familiar, get familiar. Um, our current commissioner of education in New Hampshire is basically Betsy DeVos, but male and in New Hampshire. And he um he basically was tasked with revising the state social study standards. And so he was asked to revise the state social study standards. He appointed an English teacher who had never revised standards in her life to an English teacher. 
who had very little uh, leadership experience to revise these standards. And um, she organized a group of people to revise the state social state standards. They did not reach out to the New Hampshire Council for the Social Studies and include us in this process. We are the governing body of the social studies in the state of New Hampshire, and they did not reach out to us. We represent all the social studies teachers. And so, and so you've only found out about this in passing. We found out about it in passing because someone at the Historical Society happened to mention something to somebody. It was like the stupidest process ever. And so they had. we found out that they had a meeting coming up on that like Thursday or whatever and five of us went and I drove an hour and a half to be at this meeting and basically like make a stink about the process it's not whatever they come up with it's about the process and how you do it and when you're making decisions about someone's career and or someone's you know expertise maybe you have an expert at the table it's like not having a doctor in the room when you're talking about surgery it's like wait what why right. wouldn't you? It's like, let's bring the psychologist together. Let's bring a dentist. Well, no. A surgeon to a surgery meeting? No, no, And no. there are lots of organizations in New Hampshire that should have been at the table. Um, so then I, so I get to this meeting and um, there are a few people. Pretty much everybody is passionate about revising the history standards. And so even though I teach U.S. history predominantly, I got relegated. I got assigned to be on the subcommittee for economic standards. I was the only one in the subcommittee. So, so you're in charge of doing the entire thing. So me alone writing the state standards for economics for the state of new hampshire that is wrong i should not be writing the state economics so i basically said to the chair of this whatever this ridiculous organization i said i'm sorry i should not alone be writing the state economic standards where are the stakeholders where are the all the teachers that actually teach economics on a day-to-day basis right like this is (laughs) this is messed up so i only bring up this story to basically illustrate that we think that processes are are in place place. there are no processes in and there certainly could be it just depends on who is in power who the governor is and who they appoint commissioner of education like i think about a parent listening to this and your child is going through high school and they're getting prepared for the world and hearing this story i would be emboldened and enraged to just like go forward and be like Who's reading these? Who's reading these? Who's writing these? And then the other thing, it was entirely volunteer. And so I was having to drive an hour and a half after working a full day's work down to Concord to be at these meetings. I did it for several months and then I just, I couldn't keep doing it anymore. And so I back in several months, it takes that long to write these standards it should have taken years Uh, frankly i mean we're going through so much and there's a lot of debate that should have happened and the governor sorry the commissioner gave us a month he said okay you have one month to revise the standards but that meant basically like three meetings three one-hour meetings so we have three hours to revise all of the state standards and bring them up to speed and there were lots of things that we needed to debate because the new hampshire standards and by the way the whatever they have i'm not on the the committee anymore but whatever they have produced has not yet passed so currently the new hampshire state standards uh, were last revised in 2006 
So since then, gay marriage has become legalized. There's so many things since 2006 that have happened and changed. So I want to bring us to talking about women's history specifically when it comes to the standards. And when we when we look at the state standards for women, um, the the National Women's History Museum concluded uh, basically their their title of their article that they wrote about this, which I encourage everybody to read, was "Where Are the Women?" When they analyzed the state standards, they said that um, women's experiences and stories are not well integrated into U.S. state history standards. They lack rep- uh, the, they said the lack of representation and context in state level materials. Um, presupposes that women's history is even less represented at the classroom level. So basically because they're not in there, the assumption is that it's even less represented because uh, for a number of reasons. They said this implies that women's history is not important. Perhaps yeah, it does. That's exactly what it does. (laughs) Yeah. Perhaps one of the largest reasons women are not easily recallable is that there's very little consensus um, on what women are worthy of mention. So one of the things that's much easier about men's history is we say, okay, well, here are the presidents. Here are the generals. Here are the senators. Right. They have titles worthy of inclusion. What women there is no equivalent list of women that you can generate. Textbooks, for example, overemphasize first ladies because that is a title um, that that women have. But when you actually read books written by women historians, they rarely, if ever, write books on first ladies. First ladies are not a significant part of women's history. And yet in a in a high school textbook, they dominate the the discussion of women. Yeah, it's like, you know, we should put a woman. The wife of the president. So it relegates them to wife, mother, hostess instead of leader. And so they went through the state standards and basically they um, kept a tally of women that were mentioned in the state standards. And there's a lot of diversity based on how local you are. So for... um, you know, if you live in Arizona versus New Hampshire, there might be people that are significant to your state history that um, would not necessarily be significant to another state's history. So they basically kept a tally and there were like a dozen women that were named in 10 or more standards. But the top women were number one, Rosa Parks, number two, Susan B. Anthony, number three, Harriet Tubman, number four, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, number five, Sojourner Truth, number six, Abigail Adams, uh, number seven, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, So these women are like if you basically what I concluded from that is if you are not and these are the people that are mentioned 10 or more times in the states. So if you are not teaching these women and giving them significant airtime, then you are not doing women's history justice. And that like this list that the the National Women's History Museum produced basically is our guide guiding light of consensus. Um, okay. there, there isn't consensus, but these are this is the best we've got in terms of consensus, right? These right. are the one that so these, here. these are the women that are mentioned the most. Yeah. Um, it's probably not surprising that they found that women are, uh, were sparse because of the quote historiographical framework, which we've talked about a bunch on this podcast. Um, there's a clear preference for male oriented, exceptional, uh, leadership that, um, 
women are obviously excluded from, right? Over 50% of the standards emphasized women in their domestic roles, and the rest focused on women who protested for a cause with wealthier white women getting greater attention. Um, they said the focus on domestic roles neglects the economic necessity of those roles being fulfilled and can belittle the labor that women do. Uh, pretty accurate there. So overall, they concluded that the standards failed to adequately represent and explain the roles of women in history and society. The standards are super outdated. Uh, they do not reflect womankind. In New Hampshire, uh, we have a whole bunch of different themes that we are supposed to teach to in our in our current state standards. And um, the uh, similar to what's going on at the national level, um, they are asked to look and discuss the changing role of women. That's a quote. Um, in the section on world history, students are encouraged to, quote, analyze the impact of the agricultural revolution on humans using examples. And then in the New Hampshire State Standards, they always have examples of topics that you could meet this theme with and so um they say for example the role of women yeah let's let's hear this what are the examples they're pulling from yeah so they don't they don't go into detail on on that but i think any world historian uh should be should in every single unit be teaching to the role of women um, because that is a measure of a culture is how they treat their women. I mean, that right there, that is like parade candy, Kelsey, and your golden nugget. Like, this is how you can define that culture. How did they treat women during this time period? That can go in every lesson you ever do. Every single lesson. Yeah. So, Women's history has its own patterns, and um, the standards just really don't make any room for that. They they make the, all the same errors that we've talked about, defining history in male-dominated ways, and it, it basically fundamentally leaves women out. And so for the second half of the podcast, what we're going to do is we are going to talk about the silencing of women in history. And... It is structures like these, like the state standards, that silence women. Because if you do not, yeah, yeah, exactly. If you do not give women's position a voice, an opportunity to be heard, then you, then you are you are discriminating and you are leaving those women out. When the standards do not include topics that are friendly or or when the standards do not include themes that women have participated in, then women are fundamentally silenced. And so um, we're going to look at the history of the silencing of women, and I hope that people see the connection between how we're doing it presently and how it was done in history. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's podcast is sponsored by Simply Sunflowers. Simply Sunflowers is a female-owned and operated jewelry, accessory, and gift boutique located on Main Street in Plymouth, New Hampshire. It's a perfect place to purchase a gift to celebrate yourself or one of the remarkable women in your life. Check out Simply Sunflowers online at www.simplysunflowersnh.com or follow them on Instagram, Simply Sunflowers NH. Today's podcast is sponsored by Explore Plymouth, New Hampshire. 
Looking for things to do in the greater Plymouth area? Explore Plymouth NH. It is your one-stop guide for all things to do, places to eat, and where to stay. It even has an hour-by-hour -hour event calendar that lets you know what's happening in the area. From live music to workout classes to special events, hop on the site and then go to Explore Plymouth NH. Visit ExplorePlymouthNH.com or follow along on Instagram, Explore Plymouth NH. If you think what we're doing is awesome, follow along on Instagram at Remedial Herstory. You can also go to our website to access all of the teaching resources that we've mentioned in our podcast, www.remedialherstory.com. Feel free to get in touch with us there about coming to see a live recording or sharing an idea you have for a lesson. On all of our platforms, you can find links to our Patreon page. With Patreon, you can subscribe to get exclusive offers from Remedial Herstory, including bonus episodes and gear. Check it out. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're now going to talk about the historical silencing of women. One of the things that's tricky about women's history is that one of the easiest ways you can look at how societies treat women is through looking at religious doctrine. And anytime teachers have to teach about religion, they get nervous. <laughs> I think rightfully so. Like, it's a touchy subject. It's a touchy subject. And no teacher ever wants to be accused of preaching in their classroom. Um, and so we have to be very secular about the way we teach religious history. And, um, and at the same time, validating that, like, if you believe these things, that's fine. And and you're allowed. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about, you know, secular society is that like you can believe whatever you want. And in public school, we're just going to introduce you to those things. Um, it is hard when you personally hold deep seated beliefs and you, you know, you want to be aware of your biases. Um, and and so so we don't need to get too too deep into that. But I, I want people to see that if you if you don't ever touch on religious history, if you don't ever look at religious doctrine, um, then then you're ignoring how those religions treat women, and you're, you're yeah. really ignoring women's history. Um, a, many historians that talk about how to bring women into the classroom talk about how women's history is religious history. Okay. So, um, so let's talk about, let's talk about religious history. But before, before we do, um, I want to look at some empirical studies. So one of the things that psychology, so we're talking about silencing of women. Psychologists have discovered that all of us, male, female, child, um, otherwise, trust the sound of men's voices more than women's. Interesting. So how they did this was they recorded a bunch of people speaking into a microphone like I am right now and those people said vote for me for president Ooh. that's it and then uh, you know they got a sample size of people and asked the people to listen to a couple of those voices saying vote for me for president and then the the listeners 
had to decide which person they would vote for for president, simply based on the sound of their voice. Well, it should surprise no one that all the male voices were selected as people that they trusted enough to vote for president. Now, this has nothing to do with their political positions. It has nothing to do with their policy. It has nothing to do with their qualifications. Just saying, vote for me for president. Just saying, vote for me for president. People trust men's voices more, and that's women and men. I don't know. This probably was not a part of that study, but um, I read something similar about British accents. Mm-hmm. That they are perceived as more intelligent than American accents. So should I adopt a British accent for the rest of this podcast? Yeah, a male British accent, you might get pretty far in life. Well, so one interesting thing is that a lot of women who go into politics, right, where they need to persuade people to vote for them, mm-hmm. actually train themselves to adjust their voice. Yeah. So classic examples are Hillary Clinton and then Britain's first female prime minister, Margaret Thatcher. They both had people work with them to train their voices to be lower to improve their political prospects. I think a lot of people consciously or unconsciously lower their men and women do it both. Um, sure. I, it cracks me up with like the, the adolescents that I teach when the boys who like don't even have facial hair yet come in and like, hey, Mrs. Eckert, how you doing? You know, I, I, I'm like, dude. Like, come on, you <laughs> like that's cute, but but no. So we all try to lower our voice. So it's interesting. We lower our voices to gain respect and authority. I mean, I do it with my two year old, but that I don't know if it's working. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to me, you toddler. <laughs> well, my son's name is Luke, so I do like Luke. I am your mother. <laughs> So where does this come from? And I'm always curious as a historian, like what comes first, chicken or egg? Because when a baby is born, the voice that they know is their mother's voice, right? That's the voice that the only voice they've ever heard. So it's the voice that they trust and that gives them comfort. And so why all of a sudden as we age, do we start trusting male voices more than female voices? Um, I suspect that it is comfort that it or sorry, that it is culture that impacts this transition. Every culture around the world, every culture, values the silence and obedience of women. Okay? What? <laughs> right. Modern philosophers, when they look at this, they, they say that the silence of women is not a forced slave, this is a quote, not a forced slave, but a willing one, or at least a seemingly willing one. So if you can get women to be silent, right, and not complain about their condition or about their their workload, right, they can do your housekeeping, they can take care of your children, they can, you know, clean and cook and do all these things for you. Um, and, and if we reinforce this, like, cultural standard and cultural norm of please don't complain about your condition, then now we have created willing slaves in every single home. And if people don't believe me, let's use some some cultural examples. I don't know that there's going to be one person listening to this podcast that doesn't believe that. It's just we're all enraged by it. (laughs) So each culture has a proverb in their language that to some extent says a good wife is a silent one. Okay, and this is maybe not something that is, you know, people don't say these things in present day, but it's there. It's in the text of cultural standards, norms and religious doctrine. The Mongolians barred women from uttering certain words. So they basically tabooed certain words. So women weren't allowed to speak certain things. Um, I happened to study abroad in Mongolia when I was a col- an undergrad, and I went to a religious site in, in Mongolia. Um, the 
religion is is very different, and I, I don't want to get into that too deeply. But um, basically, they have all these natural sites um, that people go to f- to have sort of a spiritual experience. Um, they have what is essentially an equi- uh, equivalent of a cairn, and when they come to a, which is like a collection of rocks, right? And so people walk around. They they add to the cairn, and then they walk around it three times as part of like a religious ritual. There's also these really. So I was in the Altai Mountains, which are in the um, top like corner, basically close to Russia of Mongolia. And we were hiking a mountain and there were all these cool little caves in the mountain. And then above um, one of the entrances to the caves, it said no women. And so all the the boys that were on this abroad with me got to crawl through this cave, have a spiritual experience. And I was not allowed to simply because I have a vagina. Um, and it infuriated me, but I, you know, I'm in a different culture and I wanted to be respectful. And so I sure. went up the other path that women were allowed to be on. Um, in the Arab cultures, they abhor a wife who talks a lot. And actually, this is something that we can see in the West as well, sort of the mocking of women who are gossips or um, like I, you know, in, in middle school, me and my friends were called chatty Cathy's, right? It was sort of a derogatory, <laughs> like, you're wrong for talking. I can, we, I was having this discussion with a friend recently, and we both had um, compared that we used to get kicked out of class a lot for talking because we were disrupting the learning process. And it wasn't that her and I together would get, we were in separate rooms trying to join a conversation in our classroom and we'd both end up in the hallway and the boys doing the exact same behavior were never removed from the course. And I can remember my mom, when I came home and I told her, I was like, I got put in the hallway again. She goes, well, look around who else is in the hallway. And I said, there's some other girls in the hallway. And she goes, those are your people. (laughs) I was like, okay, thanks mom. Oh my God. She's awesome. What a role model. So almost every culture has a creation myth where basically they, they explain how their culture came to be. One of the challenges with creation myths as um, his history is that it, it's not uh, it's been through a lot of oral tradition before it finally gets recorded. And many creation myths weren't written down until the common era. But these creation myths tell us a lot about the historic valuing of silence uh, from women in particular. Um, the ancient Japanese, for example, in their in their creation myth, um, there are a, f- um, a few gods, and they create two, a male and a female um, god who, uh, through procreation, uh, create the earth. The male god and the, f- the goddess meet, and the woman says hello to him first, Ooh. and she gives birth to a monster. <laughs> And so the god and goddess go back to the, the other gods and they say, why, why did we create a monster? Why did we birth a monster? And they said, it's because the woman spoke first. So the god and the goddess go and they repeat the ritual. And this time the man says hello first. And because he speaks first, she was able to give birth to you know creation and, and all these other things. And, and it, it works. And so basically the lesson that you take away from Japanese creation story is that women should not speak first and that they should default to the man. 
Ew. And that's from go in Japanese culture. And so I love start whenever as a teacher, I always start with other cultures because when people seem to have no problem being like, oh, yeah, well, let's look at how backwards Japan is, right? And (laughs) when you, like, zero in on America, I'm sure they're like, not us. Not, no. So here's a really great example. (laughs) In Western culture, the creation story is actually two stories. Historians who look at the book of Genesis, which is, um, Genesis means the beginning. And so the book of Genesis in the Bible has two creation stories. And we know that there are two different authors who wrote these. And so basically probably oral tradition passed down two different stories and they got recorded. And so um, chapter one of Genesis is basically, and God created the earth and behold, everything was really good. And there was basically no gender in, in that version of this story in the second book of genesis adam and eve is the story so in the story of adam and eve god makes adam um, which means man in his image and then he pulls adam's rib out and he makes eve so eve is second to adam she is she's made from him she's sort of like a mutated version of him and uh, they are hanging out in a place called eden which is this garden and it is a wonderful place to be and a snake comes along and the snake is evil and um, the snake says to eve like hey you should eat an apple from the tree of knowledge and eve's like what a great idea and so she turns to adam and she's like adam let's have an apple and adam's like okay and he's convinced he's he's tricked by the evil eve right and so and so the two of them eat an apple and now they have knowledge right and this is really problematic Um, and god have any more knowledge than god right so they so so here's and so this story of eve basically in western tradition is the justification of silencing women forever and i'm going to read some christian um commentary on women using eve as the example um but Here's the Japanese and here's the Western and, uh, version. And it's, a, it's the same thing. Women should not speak. In Japan, when they speak, they give birth to monsters. In the West, when they speak, they uh, create, you know, it is the original sin. And shame on every woman ever because they are susceptible to sin. They are the problem, right? And if, if, if Eve hadn't existed, Adam never would have eaten that apple and yeah the world would be fine okay okay bible one of the interesting things was in the 20th century they discovered um some old texts which are called the gnostic gospels and are you familiar with those at all no okay so these these texts were basically buried in um the middle east and um somebody on you know like digging a well or something uncovered that i I don't know i can't remember how it was but you know they were digging and they found they found these all these texts and um so back in um so flash forward a little bit in our in our history you know away from oral traditions of adam and eve um in the early uh, Christian Empire, which is late Roman Empire. So we're talking like uh, 400 Common Era. Um, the 
Constantine is the leader of what would become the Byzantine Empire, and um, but the, it's the Eastern Roman Empire. So Rome has split in half, and he has adopted Christianity as the official Roman religion. And Constantine basically um, uh, creates this Council of Nicaea to determine. Let's. There's a lot of Christian documents that are floating around, and people practice Christianity differently everywhere. And so let's like have some sort of consensus. And that's looking at it in. in a light way um and so this group of people uh, you know clergy get together and they basically decide the orthodox books of the bible and then anything that they don't include gets uh labeled as heresy and all those those people who believe those things are persecuted and so the Gnostic Gospels, these Gospels that were discovered in the desert, are basically a collection of documents that had been determined to be heresy. And included in them was a different interpretation of the Adam and Eve story. So this different version of the Adam and Eve story basically says that the snake was trying to enlighten them as this tyrannical God is trying to subjugate them. And Eve saves Adam from God's blind tyranny. And she is actually enlightening him and giving him, um, you know, opportunity for self-improvement and all these other things. And there's a whole collection of poems about like feminine womanhood and all of these things are hidden by the Christian church at the Council of Nicaea. And so for generations and generations after that, people grow up with sort of this patriarchal version of creation and the feminine voices of the past are are sort of lost. And this feminine version of you know, you can look at the story of Adam and Eve in lots of different ways, and we look at it from the most uh, misogynistic way that we could possibly look well, at it. Just so narrow. And it sounds like there's so much that was left out intentionally and almost to the point of like, well, these aren't important to us, so they wouldn't be important to anyone else. Because in that, you know, think about that committee at that time and how they felt about women. Obviously, that is coming through in the work that they decided to collect and distribute. Absolutely. So I want to briefly mention that in, um, you know, I jumped really far from like creation to Constantine. (laughs) Um, But um, in between there, uh, as uh, Christianity is being spread by the Apostle Paul, one of the things that comes through in in early Christianity is this concern for regulating women's speech. And um, the Apostle Paul is quoted in Corinthians 14, 34, and he says, Women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not allowed to speak, but should be subordinate, as even the law says. But if they want to learn anything, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. And so Paul basically dictates that a woman's woman should not speak in public. And so this is going to be like we talked in our in our in our uh, podcast on suffrage about how women the first battle for women suffragists was basically the ability to speak period and um and so like it's really heartbreaking for me i mean i'm like getting sad listening to this of how many women we've missed how many women that had an amazing voice and an amazing mind that we're not allowed to know about because they weren't able to speak in our culture 
Right. And they're not only able to speak basically from Paul, first century to 18th century, or sorry, 19th century. It's so long. <laughs> it's so long. It's heartbreaking. So I'm having a really hard time being narrowly focused here because, like I said at the beginning, religious history is women's history. And so the more you look, the more you find all these incredible women and incredible stories. Um, but I want to bring us back really quickly to origin stories because origin stories sort of reverberate throughout the culture over time. And so, you know, it's not like the story of Eve was written down and then people just listened to it forever and ever. It's that religious scholars for centuries to follow bring up Eve and the story basically haunts religious writing and thinking forever. Christian thinkers basically created a landscape where obedience, self-abnegation, and basically like perpetual remorse were the only acceptable attitudes that women could have. Tertullian believed that Eve's original sin basically meant that all women perpetually needed to be repentant for that, um, and, and all people, but women in particular. And um, so she, he says this is the original fall of the human race. Um, he said, quote, the sentence of God on this sex of yours lives on even in our time. So it is necessary that the guilt should live on also. You are the one who opened the door to evil. You are the one who plucked the fruit of the forbidden tree. You are the one who deserted the divine law. You are the one who persuaded him whom the devil was not strong enough to attack. All too easily, you destroyed the image of God, man. Because of your deception, that is death, even the son of God had to die. Ew. So he basically blames all women all women forever. He's speaking. He says, you are the one, right? As if like I was Eve, right? All women were Eve. Um, and and he, he basically blames women for Christ on the cross, right? Like this is the ultimate, ultimate sin. And um, his philosophy in his time was a little bit less popular, but it becomes incredibly common, and you can see it in other religious texts, by like the 1,000th mark. One historian, Rosalind Miles, said that the story of Adam and Eve was, quote, the single most effective piece of enemy propaganda, end quote. And there is so much evidence that that is true because the story of Adam and Eve is brought up over and over and over again. Joseph Swetnam writing, uh, he's, he's known as the woman hater. He argued that women um, were made from a man's rib in order to serve as his helper. But due to the nature of their origin, women are crooked and mischievous. He said, quote, a woman is better lost than found, better forsaken than taken. What? <laughs> oh, my gosh. And so if we think that Adam and Eve is just something that was like written down in this old book somewhere, you have to understand that it will perpetually be preached from the pulpit because it is religious doctrine. So long as church dominates, this story will dominate. 
And that, so we're spending a lot of time on Western culture, but these stories, these origin stories where, you know, like we, we referenced the Japanese one where women are encouraged to be silent. They are exist in every single region of the world. So what I have done is I have pulled together the original primary source material, not the paraphrased version <laughs> that you're getting here. And, um, the original primary source material, and I have put it into, I've broken the stories down into just like simple one-page readers for your students um, with some critical thinking questions that go along with them to get students to look at how women are represented in these stories. So those documents are available on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. But I think, Brooke, you need to cut me off here or else I will keep going on forever. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.